Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show, guys. You'll notice we don't run any ads here, but we do ask for you to pay a simple and small fee. And that fee is this. If you find value in the show, I'm pretty confident in the arcs we have some incredible guests each week, then please share the show. You know, if you're chatting with friends and colleagues about education and development, please recommend us. As I said, you know, we don't run ads here and we continue to grow organically through you, the listener. So please spread the word and help us get this information out to a lot more people. Now, on this week's episode, I sit down and chat to Alex Sandy Macquarie. In Sandy's own words, is a transplant Canadian, trained to the level of critical care paramedic. He's worked in paramedicine since 1993 in urban, rural and remote environments, including helicopter emergency and medical services and senior management positions. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree, a Master's of Business Administration, and recently completed a PhD. Currently is a senior lecturer at the School of Medicine at Griffith University on the Gold Coast. A passion for exploring paramedic wellness led him to conduct a doctoral research in cooperation with New South Wales Ambulance Service in a truly unique collaboration. He also has over 20 years experience as a firefighter in suburban and rural settings in three Canadian provinces and one Australian state. His current research interests include the physiological response to stress in emergency service providers and others. In this episode, me and Sandy chat about his move from Canada to Australia, the current health status of Australian paramedics, his work to improve paramedic wellness and resilience, and where his research focus is going next. Good afternoon, Sandy, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem, Sandy. Thank you very much, mate. Um, you know, it's, it's great to get you on. Obviously, as we mean you've chatted, I saw a little bit of the work you were putting up from some research you're doing with regards to uh, paramedic health and wellness. And I've said to you before, I feel within the tactical space, sometimes paramedics are forgotten about, like the, the police and fire rightfully get a lot of attention and just the demands of their job. But obviously, paramedicine is obviously a very grueling career and very stressful at times as well. So it's just, it's nice to see some of the research starting to go that way and put support around these guys as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that statement. And and although I've had a lot of birthdays, I'm an early career researcher in the space. Mm-hmm. So just finished the PhD, but I'm as passionate about it as you are probably in the same in the same regard. I want to help paramedics and tactical operators and others be in their occupation for as long as they want to be in their occupation and, and do well while they're doing it. So I have to say, as, as you'll probably hear, the things I'm doing, I'm learning Mm-hmm. about these methodologies at the same time so it's pretty good it's a pretty good deal that's awesome dude and i mean i'm really looking forward to diving into uh some of the research now you've been doing in a bit more depth before we get into that sunday just for the guys listening who you know maybe haven't come across you before just give us a little bit of a background of where your career started out and where you're currently at yeah i will you'd note a strong canadian accent so the east coast of canada uh i'm a career paramedic next year will be 30 years for me since i took my training I came up through the ranks as an EMT and then paramedic and flight paramedic, had some great jobs in Canada, senior management and uh, things like that. And I emigrated to Australia in 2013 with the promise of teaching at the tertiary level, university like you do in, in uh, Scotland and England, mm-hmm. um, teaching paramedics and was a jumping off point for my PhD. And since that time have been so lucky to finish the PhD on paramedic health and wellness in 2019 and I'm strongly in that field of 
health and wellness of operators and in across occupations. So was a paramedic, actually still am a paramedic, I still work and love education along the way. And I'm married to two in the present job I have at Griffith University here on the Gold Coast in Queens and Australia. Both beautiful parts of the world, obviously going from Canada to Australia there as well. So what, what was it that you know sparked that move for you to move from Canada from more of an applied role into academia over in Australia? And I, I, as I left Canada, I was involved kind of at the senior level of managing paramedic educational institutions in the kind of last five years. But what drew me was the fact that Australia educates their paramedics in university. It's an unusual model, unusual meaning worldwide. Um, Canada is kind of a mixture of community colleges, colleges, a couple of universities and, and vocational private trainers, um, similar in the US and England, Scotland, uh, Ireland have followed a degree route mm -hmm. uh, as, as um, pre requirements, Australia, South Africa. So they said, come teach in university. And I thought, how good would that be? So that was the other, the kind of the big draw. And they, they had promised if I qualified and worked hard that I could be eligible for a PhD, yeah. a fully funded PhD, which was very important for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Too. So obviously you're saying when you're back in uh, Canada, you're still heading up education, so stuff there. What's it been like then moving from delivering to the guys on the ground to more of the academic setting of just getting the guys early, fresh mm -hmm. on in their career as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll say my roots were vocational training. Yeah. I was kind of a community college, but it was kind of three months intensive in the classroom, two months on the ambulance, and then you were running calls the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, as a model, as a vocational model, it was acceptable, but probably not today. And obviously programs in Canada have extended now uh, to a year or perhaps two years in length. But the university level adds a richness to it. And I'll say specifically, they support the scholarship of learning and teaching. So in, in paramedicine, we promote the best intubator to teach people how to intubate. And uh, that's maybe not necessarily the best route, or we don't necessarily give them the tools, mm -hmm. training and the um, support to be able to do that effective change in behavior of learning, teaching someone how to intubate. So it appears to me, having been in Australia since 2013, that um, I'm supported in my scholarship of learning and teaching. I'm learning how to teach. And, and the evidence behind it. But more importantly, with the student down the, down the hall in the classroom and prac room is over a three or some places four-year degree program in Australia, there's a richness and a deeper understanding of, of, the, of how to be and how to, how to be a professional paramedic. Yeah. It's, uh, again, it's, it mirrors what's going on in the UK. Mm -hmm. And when you have them for that long, you can talk evidence and you can have them do um, evidence-based work and you can let them go out and come back and and you can see them mature so the, the timeline and the fact that it's university-based is very exciting uh, it may not be the I'm not sure what the perfect model is to train paramedics to educate paramedics but this is this is a pretty good one I have to say yeah that's cool obviously you mentioned there when you made the move over to Griffith University the the opportunity arose for you to pursue your PhD which you've now completed uh, can you just chat to us a little bit about where your, your research interest lies and, you know, uh, where is that expanding out to? Yeah, so not only was, and I actually started at Charles Sturt University with the PhD in 2013. The, um, the, 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 the draw for Australia was there's others like me. So I was able to be mentored at the level of, of PhD student and mm -hmm. 
when we, we have many master's paramedic master's programs and many, many paramedic degree programs, but there's a richness in the academic side and the, and the research side. So it's not untoward to have this couple of PhDs and some coming through the pipeline here within our small program at Griffith. And that's, that had a lot to do with why I wanted to do, come to Australia to do a PhD. And I think uh, I'm not really answering your original question, but it's so important to know that places like, in, well, UK, Australia, some others like, like South Africa, with a tertiary education, higher degree, master's level, PhD level, creates that culture where we can now solidly teach our own, and we can solidly research with our own, yeah. which is, it's hard. Yep. So with regards to that then, so obviously extensive amount of research going on there as well from the paramedicine yep. field for you guys. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, paramedic wellness and that, because I know it's something you're really interested in and you're doing a lot of research into it. So, you know, what, what's, well, every country is going to have different cultures and that around, you know, their, their outlook on fitness and health in different communities. So what, what's the, the current outlook with regards to, you know, the health status of Australian paramedics? Yeah, for those, uh, for Australian paramedics, it's, um, I think they follow the trends and curves of a lot of Western society paramedic services. And I, when I speak of paramedic services, I mean like state-based services. NHS trust means is equal to kind of Queensland ambulance service. Um, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a really complicated answer, but I'm going to make it really simple. Paramedics probably follow the same trajectory as the general population mm -hmm. as they age, you know, cardiorespiratory insufficiency drops and, and uh, musculoskeletal issue, issues happen. You get some atrophy, BMI increases. Uh, what's different, John, is that we have to pick heavy people off the floor. Yeah, <laughs> and and with that, and you're nodding your head because you know we're fine as general population, like the crew of paramedics. Our incidents are uh, that are concerning, really concerning, are body stressing injuries. As a population of paramedics in both Australia and probably most Western society services, and the incidence of uh, and length of time it takes to recover from um, critical. Uh, mental health injuries, you know, in terms of stress, post-traumatic stress, things like that, time out of the workplace, time out of life is very high. The, the opportunities within the profession, which are to be sometimes long periods of sedentary activity, followed by short bursts of really intense activity, uh, although Metro paramedics will tell you they're run off their feet, and I would agree. The uh, opportunistic eating, the shift work, which is a major contributor, I believe, to ill health, disturbed sleep patterns. Here in Australia, they do, uh, in a lot of states, they'll do what's called all what's called on call. So they'll actually be taking the ambulance home with them that night and responding to their communities. That's hard uh, in terms of interrupted family life and sleep. So kind of going down that list, those are things that are flagging, but it's also showing up in other countries. So how do you equate that? How do you put a number on it? Um, there's been some published research, Brian McGuire and, and teams have looked at Australian paramedics a number of times, a couple of times over the years, done the same in the US. The um, Daniel Patterson and, and uh, Dave Hostler in the US are key researchers. Tactical Research Unit at Bond looks at tactical operators. And um, they, the services themselves will state that uh, the, the, the premiums or the cost of both 
paying the comp claim for the body stressing injury or the prolonged time period off are high. Uh, and there's also the costs of replacing that paramedic with another one and the cost of sick time, the general not, you know, and, and so all those stats are, are reasonably easily available and point to the fact that we are, we are probably following the population, but there's instances where our job demands that we shouldn't follow the population trajectory through our career. I mm -hmm. hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, um, you're saying there with regards to, you know, having to, from the job role, having to pick heavy people off the floor. You know, I can attest that from firsthand experience. I know we were chatting before, I said to you, um, back in 2015, I broke my leg at judo practice. And the two, two attending yeah. paramedics were fantastic, like really good professionals, uh, really looked after me. But I remember when they came in the door, because uh, we were on the first floor, the, the studio was, and they're both quite large individuals. That, and I remember thinking, like, I'm not the easiest person because I'm quite heavy myself. And it's just like getting me on, on the, the stretcher and getting me down the stairs and into, into, the, into the ambulance as well. But um, it's just like, you know, how do these guys cope with the demand of long shift patterns and having to deal with heavier people like myself as well? And what's the impact on them? Um, obviously, we know there's a lot of wear and tear with regards to the tactical uh, community. Um, just because of the nature of the job. So on that, Andy, what, what would we typically see is the you know common injuries we'd see like from an MSK standpoint with regards to paramedics. Does it follow the same trend we'd see in police and fire with regards to backs, knees, shoulders, that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm nodding. I'm not an expert in the area and, and anyone who looks after those areas in services, please feel free to respond to the podcast. But mus musculoskeletal or body stressing injuries, hips, knees, elbows, shoulders, um, are, are big often uh, reason for people to be up to miss work as a paramedic. But I, I need to backtrack just a little bit. And that is frequently we'll start out a paramedic paper by saying we have a physically demanding job. And I have to say, I'm not 100% in agreement with that statement. I believe we've got an intermittently physically demanding job that's not well quantified. You know, in terms of, you know, you use yourself as the example. I would say that's a perfect example of an intermittent physical exam. Pick John off the floor, and I may not pick John off the floor for another three weeks. So in examining, I was a paramedic, you know, in, in services, state and provincial services, um, probably unhealthy by times. But we, what we, you know, spend lots of time on standby, but lots of time run off my feet too. It's the intermittent, awkward turns, lifts, moves that contribute to perhaps a person who's who's not from a fitness point of view, or let's say musculoskeletal strength point of view, ready for that move. And there's a strain sprain pull. So I think that the, the thinking needs to shift from we're physically demanding job to we're intermittently physically demanding, which makes it worse to prepare for, right? Yeah. I don't know if they did any calisthenics before they picked you up, John, probably didn't, no. right? So that's a perfect example. Someone says, you know, you got to carry all the the gear up to the third floor should we, can we do a warm-up first the answer is no mm -hmm. they're in a rest on the third floor so i'd like the conversation to include the fact that we do physically demanding things but we do them probably more intermittently than we than we say metro paramedics slammed absolutely get it regional paramedics bit busy as well kind of in different ways but the conversation around how to make paramedics healthier should should focus on we're getting you ready right now for lifting John off the floor three weeks from now. What are we gonna do in the run-up and how are we gonna get you ready? 
Yeah. Sorry to be controversial early on. No, it's all good. We like a little bit of controversy here, Sandy. It's all good, mate. Yeah. Um, so obviously you've seen that just like, you know, the, the structures and support around guys as well to, for physically preparing them. So what, what, what's, especially in Australia there at the moment, what, what's the current attitudes and beliefs from, you know, the guys on the ground, like the paramedics actually on the ground and like from the organizational level around like health and fitness? Yeah, that's excellent. So my first study of my PhD was polling the population of New South Wales ambulance paramedics. We published it in the Irish Journal of Paramedicine. We can probably send you the link for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we looked at their health status, but we polled them. We asked them questions. About almost 800 of them responded out of a population at that time of 3,000. And we said, we, we queried them about their health and fitness habits. And what we found was, do you, do you get to exercise in regular organized physical activity with regularity? And, and if not, what stops you? Regional and paramedic kind of, you know, uh, answered about the same proportion and said the same thing. We're, we're relatively young. We've got young families. We are balancing shift work with everything else, common to both groups. Mm -hmm. What was different between regional and, and uh, metropolitan was the regional people were saying, we don't have ready access to a snap fitness gym. It's hard for us to play team sports when we're on call. And we feel that, that this is disadvantaging us as paramedics. So that was different than, than what their city counterparts said. And I think that's important. So the context of where paramedics work is important. Yeah. If you're on the, uh, the very northern part of Scotland, where one of our students is moving to start work, okay. is, is she going to have that opportunity for regular organized physical activity when she wants it, or, or, or even can she? And, and is, is it there in the community? And that's the, the question I'll throw back to you is what is, what is the, the people who deal with these injuries and deals with the, the downstream effect? What do they say about in terms of proactively getting these folks ready for their intermittent physical demands? How do you handle that? Yeah. How do you advise them? Yeah. I think that's the challenging thing from, uh, you know, train the tactical population. As you say, the, the work is very much intermittent and it can go from very sedentary to, you know, high level stress situation. That, and it's just like, how do you prepare for that? And a lot of time you don't know fully what you're going into and as you say you don't have the the warm-up time as well to get physically prepared for so you just need to be able to go in cold no that's right so it's a challenge for us and um there's there's some really good researchers in australia and actually around the world that are in this space mm -hmm. um and the ones that i interact with a lot around australia dr ben or sorry soon to be dr ben Mealy from monash university he'll cringe when i say that uh, just finishing his phd um it does great work in the space of quantifying the job. Mm -hmm. And that harkens back to what I was talking about earlier. I'm not sure the job is well quantified, meaning you can expect over the course of a shift, a series of shifts, a block of shifts, a month, to have the, these kind of forces on your body, this kind of physiologic response, all of the things being like, like health status, all that sort of stuff. And you can expect this kind of this much um, recorded physical activity on an accelerometer. Yeah. Um, and here's your outliers and here's your extremes. And if that's the case, then how do we now, now prepare you for it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think that's the challenge. And it's going to take a team to do that. Yeah. It'll take folks like you and me and, and uh, exercise physiologists and the whole, we need to all be at the same table. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And I mean, it's interesting as well because as we were saying it's just so intermittent and you can go from nothing to you know 100 into a high stress environment as well um and 
it, it'll be interesting to see you know that research come out and just trying to quantify the demands of the job for what that person's been stressed to so but from what you've seen so far sandy do you see any correlations then between you know improved strength and fitness with regards to job task performance so are the guys who are a little bit fitter can they cope with the demands of those longer shifts or those higher intermittent uh, you know stress points yeah so i would i'll report on what i found in my phd so i came to australia with the question of if, if a paramedic gets fatigued can they make a good clinical decision that was my original question and i did my my sample my population like i talked about earlier I went to monitor the population of paramedics by giving them biometric shirts and sending them out for six months and get their call data. And when it, all the data came back in, I was going to take them and put them in, in simulation and then send them to the gym. Yeah. And I realized when the data was coming back from their, their just wearing the, the shirts, the shirts that, that we were, I didn't know the context of their work well enough to even design a fatigue protocol, you know, and then send them to the gym and then put them back in fidelity mm -hmm. uh, training. So I went to my supervisors and I said, I'm kind of done with the gym thing, which is the downstream. I need to understand the, both the physiologic and their self-reported uh, uh, take on how they do the job. So I'll paint the picture. We had 32 paramedics over, over what it was in total a six month period. We followed them through a, at least a block of their shifts. So usually between seven and 12 shifts uh, in a row. Their normal rotor, they wore a hexoskin biometric shirt, which is sophisticated enough to get good heart rate, heart rate change, key metrics like respiratory rate, tidal volume, G-force, raw accelerometry, energy burn. And New South Wales Ambulance gave me their call data. So they, I was able to merge the two of them, mm -hmm. physiologic data, with self-report data of fatigue and their call data, were, were they going to a cardiac arrest or a stub toe into one program? And then we built a model and we cycled in variables to say, what changes a person's heart rate, their own heart rate from shift start when they're quite calm to this point, what changes it? And we did, we, we, we found some things in the metric. We ended up with 2,500 hours of recorded time. Mm -hmm. 2,500 hours, almost a thousand calls responded to. And uh, of these 32, they were quite industrious and they mirrored the demographic of New South Wales ambulance. So half rural, half urban. Um, health status, John, health status is really important yeah. where we saw increases in blood pressure and heart rate and respiratory rate, regardless of call, were those with diminished health status. Okay. And I'll speak specifically of uh, one of the one of the indicators we used was BMI, and I know it's very controversial. Uh, BMI and waist to height ratio, and cardiorespiratory fitness, aerobic capacity, I should say. Um, where they worked, the rural paramedics had. So when I speak of differences, I mean there's a higher or more ex, accentuated response to the same type of call. Cardiac arrest here, cardiac arrest here. There's a difference in physiology based on BMI cardiorespiratory fitness, gender, um, where they worked, rural, rural was higher, uh, and type of call, which is, you know, almost to be expected. And they just, those variables, I had about 15 variables in total, uh, just kept sticking in the model. We ran, we, we fitted a linear mixed model. And what we kept seeing is, is they, they would report higher heart rates, higher blood pressures, higher respiratory rates, higher, not 
dependent on G-force, not, not dependent on, on how they've exerted themselves. And they kept it up for longer. So we dived not into, not only into the cross the whole shift, but we dived into every single call. So we divided it into five distinct areas where they'd get the call, drive to the call, meet the patient, take the patient to hospital. And we said within those five epochs, where are they, where are their differences? And it is, there's a big difference when the paramedic first receives the information, okay, when it's, I call it the call being dropped, and when they first meet the patient, okay? And, and we were getting up to four-way interactions with those variables that I have listed. So by epoch, those two, with BMI, gender, posting, et cetera, cardiorespiratory fitness. So it's, it's kind of, people's eyes glaze over by this point in the conversation when I go on, but it's important that we quantified it. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote about it and it was more, at that point it becomes a descriptive paper. There's no intervention anymore. But those with high BMIs uh, took longer to return to their own baseline after a call, much longer, if at all. Uh, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate compared to their counterparts that had lower, and same with uh, aerobic capacity. Uh, they were using a much larger percentage of their heart rate max. We would run, so we beep tested a bunch of them, about half that cohort, reran their calls, and we found that those that were had a higher VO2 max, there was some elite athletes amongst them, um, operated on a significantly lower percentage of their heart rate max, mm -hmm. like kind of mean of 38% of their HRM. And, and that's all calls. Uh, the, 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 more, the higher BMI ones were kind of in the 55% of their heart rate max for all calls. So, you know, we're talking comparing like calls between the, the two groups. Uh, so that's, that was, that painted that, that picture of quantifying how I saw them. And I'm gladly punted it and, and moving on to say who else can take this and make, make more sense of it than just me. Yeah. That's interesting you say as well, like for the, the paramedics who had the higher BMI, obviously lower VO2, it's gonna take longer after that call to get back down to baseline. For those individual segments you broke up, was there any individual differences within that? So obviously I would take it receiving the call, there'd be a sudden spike within the heart rate. Is, Were they able yep. to bring that back down with regards to, you know, on the drive to the call or does it remain elevated throughout? Uh, for the, those with diminished health status, it remained elevated throughout, even in the crew room long after the call was over. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's a routine transfer and that's a, a code one call. Okay. Yeah. Uh, everybody had a similar spike. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it's, it's pretty, pretty expected. Um, older paramedics had a bit of a diminished spike, I think, because they probably have seen it all, but, um, it's not, that's not a scientific statement, but, uh, you know, you get the call, you meet the patient, you're settled down, you're in the crew room having a talk afterwards. Mm -hmm. And the ones with the higher BMI are still tacking. Yeah. And still, and I should have mentioned, we asked the paramedics to take their own blood pressure before and after every call or, and, or every two hours within the shift. Yeah. So, so we had a pretty good kind of diary of their hemodynamic status at minimum of every two hours per shift. And sometimes more often than that when they were busy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're saying it's taken them longer to get back down to baseline. <clears throat> what was that time frame? You know, we're quantifying it's taking longer. Are we talking hours on end here, or is it a shorter duration within that? Yeah, uh, we quantified 
paramedics that are listening will nod and they'll say, well, we don't always transport patients and they're correct. Um, for those that we had a call completion handed at the hospital, we were seeing by the time they were put back in service and it was on average about, um, I'm gonna be wrong when I say that, it would be greater than an hour, probably greater than two hours post call drop. Okay. Um, the, the higher BMI ones were still significantly elevated compared to the ones that weren't. And uh, I think we need to take a moment to talk about BMI because people will write to you angry that I'm using BMI as a tool. And uh, I would agree. So one person I know, he's a great guy, said, you know, BMI is such a blunt tool. And he's right. It's not a measure of adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. It's not a measure of fitness. There are tactical operators who I'm sure would fall, tip into the overweight category, but would bench press me in my car. So um, I'm basing it on population data and some, some big studies that say um, as BMI increases numerically, you probably know all this, odds ratio of developing metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera, increase as well. And we can quantify that. So now the paramedic who's at a BMI of 30, mm -hmm. regardless of how I view him, is, is changed his relative risk ratio or odds ratio of becoming you know, um, type 2 diabetic more so than the guy or person who's at the 25, 27. Even as it goes through 29, it's starting to move upwards. And, it's, and once you tip over into what you call obese and a, not a good category a name, um, it, it starts to go up markedly. So I think listeners, and I also combine it with waist to height ratio, which I think when you start to add the two together, there's some literature to support that synergy. You have two, two measures and uh, conicity would be another one you could think of, but that's really what I'm looking at. Um, you start to be able to say, we can say that as they approach greater than 30 and we have paramedics like that, uh, we can say they have diminished health status based on population data that mm -hmm. says those that are over 30 have propensity for these sorts of uh, morpho um, pathologies to happen. So having addressed P BMI, I'll say, it's not a be and all end all. We don't have DEXA scans yeah. uh, with them, but uh, we found it a useful enough tool when combined with others, like like um, waist height ratio and and uh, things like that, especially. Okay. <laughs> there, saved 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 you someone emailing you saying he's so obsessed with BMI. <laughs> and like you say though, Sandy, like BMI, yes, is very much a blunt tool. Yep. It does have its uses if you're talking about large, large uh, groups of people you're trying to quickly quantify and max. Like I'd, I would say, you know, oh, great, if we can use DEXA or, you know, um, you know, the Isaacs or stuff with skinfolds. But if you've got a couple hundred people you're trying to run through quickly, you know, you're going to be there for days as opposed to very quickly running those numbers just to get a rough idea. Yeah. And like you say as well, you know, if someone's got a BMI 30, it puts them that bit more metabolic risk there as well. But obviously there is those outliers. So if we're talking guys like rugby league, rugby union, who could have yeah. BMIs of the third, still very uh, cardiovascularly fit, very muscular yeah. strong guys, despite that higher BMI as well. So it's just taking over a pinch of salt. Totally in agreement. And uh, as you, you get the number back, I hate the, I hate the qualifying terms. I hate mm. them because people hear the word overweight and they just shut down. Yeah. There's no more conversation. I'm not overweight. I take that personally. Use the number mm -hmm. and say, all right, I'm clocking in at 28. Uh, technically, it's overweight, but I'm not. I'm a body fat of 13 as a male and really active and free of 
you know, ischemic heart disease. So therefore, at that point, it's just a number. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be hung up with this overweight term. You can get on with your life. But if you're at 31 and 32 and, uh, you know, you've got a history of uh, heart disease in your family mm -hmm. and you can, show, you can determine through other methods kind of how much adipose tissue you have on, then, then that's different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a cause for concern. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you start off with your PhD in this space here, Sandy, as well. Um, where, where's your research starting to look at now with regards to overall, you know, resilience and wellness within paramedics? Yeah, so I'm trying to, to narrow down things that will change health okay. and things that will aid you in delivering your job, doing your job. I'll do it across occupations. I'm doing it across occupations, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But I wanted to get pointy. So whereas I didn't get to do an intervention, I didn't do an intervention during my PhD, I'm working now with, a, with the populations of paramedic students. So we're looking at how they react within their training space when we put pressure on them when we test their resilience and give them stress, how do they deal with it and how can we intervene? So we've wrapped up a trial of, of things like mindful breathing, mindfulness, tactical breathing trials during critical skill delivery, first ambulance placement, virtual placement, because we got a uh, placement canceled. And so we're writing all of that up. I supervise honor students that are doing that. And we're going wider to wider industry so not just paramedics, but uh, I'm working with early childhood educators, a group across Australia that are looking at the wellness of their, their staff, same parameters. Um, I've got a grant to study, I'm gonna call them long haul truckers, professional drivers. That'll be a two year study we're kicking off in the next few weeks, we'll look at 250 of them. Wow. Same thing. So not only will we measure their metrics, compare them to other things that we know like self-report and in-vehicle monitoring and things like that, but the the, the end point is to give them interventions, to give them. And I'm not talking yoga every Tuesday. I'm talking things that will work for them because people say, well, I don't want yoga. I want, you know, I don't know what I want. I want satellite TV in the station. So we need to be thoughtful. And I thought I would start. It's a good podcast, isn't it? Um, I thought I'd start by getting my methodologies right. So the area becomes... Um, heart rate, not so much heart rate change, but heart rate variability, yeah. change in hemodynamic status, changes in self-report of stress, changes in their ability to handle um, the signal to noise ratio. So as we increase the noise ratio, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it needs to be services and those who employ tactical operators who haven't or should, should look at this to say, how can we pick the best of these interventions for our, our best operators and make sure they're as healthy as they can be for as long as they want to be. I say, if you want to be a paramedic for seven years, be a paramedic for seven years. But if you wanted to be a paramedic for seven years and just year two and you're, and you're fried and you've got a bad knee and you can't sleep and you're quitting, then there's something wrong there. Yeah. You know, I don't think, think yes, I don't think the expectation is we're all 30 year operators anymore, pushing a stretcher, it's called humping a stretcher. Um, but you should have a productive life, yeah. career, balanced with family, balanced with footy, balanced with whatever you want. So my area now is heart rate variability, heart rate change, other metrics, um, health status, self-report of um, anxiety, stress. So I, the term is not new, but I call it the psycho, it is called the psychophysiologic face. 
so you marry the physiology with uh, a psychologic measure or measures, and, you, and in the end you say, well, um, this is really stressing this operator out, and by the way, he's unhealthy to start with, so we're going to intervene, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, health status, diminished health status, I think is, it's just hidden and it just needs to be at the top. We all say, well, what a gym in every station and we're good. Mm -hmm. But that's not the answer. <laughs> it, it's one of them, but it's not the answer. Yeah. So we need to say, all right, he's BMI 32 and he's missed 17 days last year. And his, his, his or her uh, lower back is, is um, chronically injured. What plan do we have for this person that involves true interventions? Involving physio, um, ergonomists, kinesiologists, and and uh, nutritionists, and it's not in all seriousness. We need to have all those people. And here's here's a really important one. You need to involve that person's family because they are going out every day and coming back beat. And I'm not sure the family probably does understand a lot of what goes on, but maybe they don't. Yeah. But those those um, that ability to be well. I think is fostered by supportive partners and in-laws and kids and as well as the employer. It's easy to blame the employer. It really is. I was one of them, uh, but it's, it's not really the answer. You need to get everybody at the table, Exactly. what interventions work. And I'm hoping my methodologies to, to be so long-winded um, that my methodologies will be applicable. Mm -hmm. to whatever service or group wants to take them and say, let's look at heart rate variability over a week in our dispatch center. Wow, they are mightily stressed or they appear to be during these times and, and they're, they may not be as healthy as others in these respects. Let's do something. That's where I'm at. And uh, 100% agree with that. You're saying from that holistic approach of obviously yeah. everyone from service provision on the table, but importantly, the, the family there as well, because that's a whole different conversation when people get home from a long day of work and walk through the door. It's just like, what are those conversations feeding into as well? Um, I'm quite interested, you're saying there, with regards to your students there, Sandy, you're working a lot on the, the tactical breathing cycles and that as well with them. How, how are you implementing that? Because I know um, from my previous conversation chatting to Andy Bell, you know, about <laughs> the, the, these ideas of like, you know, the cognitive pause. Of just taking yeah. a quick step back after assessing the situation then going forward is that something you're starting to implement in like that or is it prior to the event yeah prior to okay. we uh we've done we've done one study with mindfulness just about to start another one in two weeks with andy mm -hmm. uh first one was on critical skill delivery so they took a mindfulness seminar mindfulness again makes people's eyes glaze over but really it was delivered by a gentleman by the name of dave wood um and he runs, a, he's a high performance coach out of New Zealand, also a paramedic. And he, and he, he gets us into the space where we're, he makes them aware of their bodies, centering, tactical breathing, and exercises to do tactical breathing mm -hmm. with the onus on practice afterwards, and then doing cycles of tactical breathing prior to the delivery of the skill. So we've done that one. We're just about to do the next one, which is we'll do a bit of a longer seminar. Dave's also hosting it, hosting it again. He's, he'd be a good one to interview by the way. And we will put them in simulation. Yeah. So now with not just one skill, it's going to be 20 minutes of full on. And then we're going to, within that, we're going to vary the level of simulation. So one will be a full on immersive simulation and the other one will be their normal university practicum. Yeah. So it's kind of a double RCT trial. 
and that kicks off in three weeks well, okay. uh, with our students. So uh, you need to have that prior training. You need to have, have to know how to employ it. And then you need to have the ability to employ it probably peri incident, peri meaning like around before, mm -hmm. hopefully maybe a little bit during, certainly after. Okay, that's awesome too. Uh, I know obviously you touched upon just um, with regards to, you know, that uh, stress and anxiety management and, you know, looking at HRV with regards to some of your research as well. As, as a space as a whole, looking at paramedics, health and wellness and resilience and that, where do you feel the research needs to start going next with what people are looking at? I think we need to quantify the job even further okay. to understand that those intermittent physical demands and other demands, we need to quantify it. And again, Ben Meadley and, and folks like that are, are physically putting cosmeds on, on rescue swimmers from, from the air ambulance, well, flight paramedics, to quantify and say, this is the standard. If you were to say to a person in senior management of, of an ambulance service, what do you think the VO2 max would be the minimum expectation for any member of your service. And then just wait for the reply. It might come, might not, probably won't. So understanding that you are gonna need a minimum of 35 mils per kilogram per minute. And they're currently looking at about mid twenties, you know, as a population and put them on a submax test. And therefore it becomes, the equation becomes, how do we get them up mm -hmm. that, that extra to that level? So it's a combination of um, structured and tailored and coached physical fitness, structured physical activity, attention to diet, fix the shift pattern, fix the shift pattern, yeah. involve the families. It's probably along those lines. Okay. So I'm hoping that future research involves further quantification, um, making sure that uh, we can measure, I think with biometric shirts and cause portable cosmeds and things like that, we can start to do applied research. And I'm not an exercise physiologist, John, I am a paramedic. So with those people at the table that we can, we can do our own applied research to say, what do you need as a VO2 max, you know, level of cardio aerobic capacity, cardio, yeah, aerobic capacity as a paramedic student, you know, what is it in Australia is undetermined. Uh -huh. So I suspect it's the same in Scotland. So that's the starting point, quantifying the job, quantifying the health of those while doing the job and then intervening. Cool. Yeah. And you're right that we started the conversation, but what's wrong with paramedics, muscular body stressing injuries, certainly very serious uh, mental health issues, mm -hmm. um, big sick time, you know, reason, reasonably big sick time and absences from the workplace and indicators like the general population of, of cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, higher BMIs, my study in 2015 showed a higher BMI in the, in our paramedic population than the Australian population. That's okay. significantly different. So that was, that was a, an, a key finding. So those are the sorts of things that need to be done and then resulted. And I'll, I'll ask the next question is, well, our ambulance service is doing anything about it now. Okay. And the answer is it's a pretty mixed bag. But I have to say, the, I did my PhD with New South Wales Ambulance, and they were phenomenal to work with. Uh, a couple of CEOs, current one, Dominic Morgan, absolutely let me come in and study the health of their population. It was perfect. They've made some very concrete steps as a service, and these might perk some people's ears up. 
they did install or in, uh, put into every station uh, gyms. They're now in I think 243 stations across New South Wales. They followed it up with the ability to have access to health coaching, certainly coaching advice, online wellness platforms. They do a three-day wellness workshop where all now 4,000 members have to come in and, and with their peers, small groups, spend three days talking about the topics that we're talking about right now. And there are other services doing other things, but I, I continue to either keep in very close contact with them and or help them as they implement some interventions. Yeah. And then the next step is to evaluate their efficacy. Well, that's really cool to hear. And I think it'll be interesting that you say over the next five, 10 years just to see how that space develops as well. And if more and more organizations take on that New South Wales model of just you know, putting in those um, health and wellness uh, protocols as well as the gym access and just those peer support things as well. So yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll they see. need to be well supported. You're right. If you build a gym, they will not come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you build a gym and support it with a health coach and, and peer support and, and ability to use it when you need, then I think you'll see some differences. But it's a good it's a good research question, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Now, obviously, Sandy, everyone I have on the, the podcast, I'm always interested to know what they're doing for their own CPD. So on that, can you just give us a website, a book or an app recommendation you personally found useful, either for your own education or your own development? Um, so I'm a registered paramedic. So my CPD primarily revolves around um, keeping up to date in the latest trauma and medical developments that we mm -hmm. teach our students. So Australasian College of Paramedicine gives us tailored education. Although I interact with um, members of ESSA, Exercise Sports Science Australia, I've done a webinar for them on, on paramedic health. So I do outreach as part of my CPD, and this is probably part of it as well. I do online training, but the podcasts, um, this one, the, the debrief, there's, there's a bunch that Andy and I have done, and they're just, they're just so good to, in, to bring in what's new, like in the fast lane, uh, medic mindset they're just great sites great podcasts really switched on people in terms of my own personal development i'm trying to keep active and have regular structured physical activity and it's so important to me so i play master squash and i cycle and i try and and work out with regularity um, but i follow functional movement people and kind of some of those websites i'm kind of over my crossfit years um, with, with everything intact, I think it's great, but it's uh, I'm almost 60, so not right now. But I use elements of it in my training mm -hmm. and, and find it very effective. So I'm always looking to see how I can at least keep a level of physical fitness and aerobic capacity um, as long, long as I possibly can. I'm kind of I'm not quite past the point of lifting heavy people off the floor, but uh, I'm closer to the end than the beginning okay. in that respect. Nice, dude. I'll make sure I pop all that in our show notes as well, Sandy, so yeah. people can access that. Um, obviously, it's been great chatting to you, Sandy. For anyone who's listening who wants to, you know, reach out, find out a little bit more, potentially collaborate on something, you know, what's the best way they can do that? Um, I think I've given you my Twitter, LinkedIn, and email, and I would encourage anyone that's listening just to reach out in, in any one of those platforms. I'm reasonably active in, in those and I am looking for opportunities to collaborate. I want to learn. And if there's, if there's areas I can lend advice in or whatever, whatever I've gained so far, then I want to do that too. That's great, honestly. 
I'll pop them in our show notes as well, uh, Sandy, just so anyone can reach out to you as well. I mean, once again, Sandy, you know, thank you very much for being very gracious with your time. It's very much appreciated, dude. It's been a great conversation with you. My, my pleasure. Can't wait to see it when it comes out. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Sandy. Take care. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Team Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people. <laughs>